Welcome to Stupsin. Stupsin is a series of Dharma talks by Anthony Osler, Dai Chong Osho, the guiding teacher at Poplar Grove Zendo in South Africa, and a former Zen monk. The talks draw from traditional Zen teachings and koans to make them relevant wherever we live and whatever life we lead. If you feel inspired by these teachings and would like to make an offering to support Stupsin, you can go to our website, stupsin.co.za, to find out how. Yesterday, Margie and Emma and myself went off to a funeral. And I haven't told a funeral story for a few months. But we went to town as an old uh, friend of ours who, who died. And uh, we went dressed up, made up, washed the car drove into town, by which time, of course, the car was full of mud, and went to the Dutch Reformed Church in town, which was actually quite empty. Uh, just a few of us uh, rather elderly folk um, sitting shyly in the back, and uh, the Dumini up in the top in the clouds, uh, talking. He's also an old friend of ours, lovely man. And I noticed at once that the there was no more organ uh, being used in the in the church. Instead, there's a kind of a screen at the front of the church, and you see pictures of a laptop and a mouse, which travels across the screen near the pulpit, and then something gets pricked and some words appear. Um, and then a kind of drum and electric piano plays and everyone sort of sings along. And uh, <laughs> it's really quite fun. That's the main church in Colesburg. Uh, and then there were lovely prayers and, 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 and speech, a sermon. And then at the end, the, the, the widow and two adult children um, went up to pay tribute to their father. And, and deeply heartfelt, uh, beautiful words. And, and the young man, the son, just was overcome by emotion at the sorrow and gratitude and immensity of that moment. And as he did that, the whole congregation kind of leaned forward to hold him. Just that. 
just in that moment we all paid our tribute to to the deceased and to the whole world. And just there, whatever our tradition or allegiance or beliefs, there was just one world happening. Of course, in theory, philosophically, there's just this whole world happening all the time. But every now and then it becomes clear, kind of pops its head up. Uh, and there we are, all together, whoever we are, just, just living this life kind of completely. So it, it just reminds me of how uh, the practice that we do, and of course we are in the fortunate, privileged position here that we, we just keep going in, in, in a formal practice and we just sit and we bow and we chant each morning and each evening whether people are here or not. But that beyond that, the practice is happening all around us. And, and that's, that's the thrill of it. Uh, when we're not doing Zen with people who who know the language and the references, the kind of Zen jargon. But people who, who are just not part of that particular practice, but with whom our practice becomes uh, real. One of the lovely things about um, doing what Margie and I and Emma and Anne, whoever's with us here, uh, one of the privileges and one of the f fun, fun bits of it is that people come here and they, and they talk and they tell stories and they give me poems uh, and, and they talk about their lives. And somebody was here recently and uh, talking again about the difficulties of being privileged. Uh, in this case, it was a, a, a white South African uh, woman um, who was talking about the the... Uh, how difficult she found it to 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 be a person of affluence when there were so many around us who, who don't have that. And of course, that's one of the 
in your face realities of a society like this. That's part of our real world. And if our practice, if our Zen practice, our spiritual practice is to be real, then that's one of the things we, we deal with. Not only in this country, of course, but perhaps, uh, perhaps here in a, in a very sharp-pointed way. And it was clear as she started talking about how she should deal with this situation and that situation, people who were needy, people who were begging, people who were asking, how when we look at our life through the perspective of self, Those kind of questions cannot be satisfactorily resolved. There's always a, another question, another possibility, a potential criticism, a, something unfinished. And we try and take a life question like that and we look at it through the lens of of our concepts, our languages, our psychological uh, patterning, our history, everything we've become. And when we look at it in that way, it, 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 it just doesn't seem to resolve. The conversation goes on and on and on. And it's only when, if I may use this phrase again, or perhaps put it this way, to, to really look at that kind of question, we have to go deeper. We have to go deeper into our life and look at it from that part of our life that is beyond the anxious, problem-solving self with the tools that it has at its disposal. And in a sense, what our spiritual path is, is to know that there's always this possibility in every moment, in every situation, to find that part of ourself which is unbounded, where we respond, and again these are just uh, images and words, we respond from the, the core of our being, where we respond from our belly uh, rather than our head. And in a way, the Zen practice that we do 
originates in the anxieties and longings of the self that sets us on our way towards the impossible and unknowable goal of enlightenment. But that along the way, this process which is in part uh, a process of shedding the dominance of the self, we find that the self is very resilient and keeps on popping up. And we have to refine our attitude towards it. But it is, in a way, kind of distressing that when we look at things, relationships, situations, uh, there we are again with the same kind of voice, with the same kind of argument, with the same kind of anxieties and, and fears. We open the pantry, there it is on the shelf. Huh, too many beans. We lift the duvet, there it is. Uh, hot water bottles leaking. We meet old friend on the street. Oh, he's looking as old as I feel. And one of the ways that we look at our Zen practice is to say, okay, of course that's real that this old voice keeps on sounding in my ear. But that's the reality of this moment. So let me get inside that situation. Let me get inside that moment and see if I can find something else there as well. Some presence, some light. And in our formal Zen practice, we, we do it in certain ways. We, we, we have a, what we call a form, um, a kind of a ritualized set of behaviors where we bow and we chant and we sit in a certain way. That's part of this process where already we uh, behave in a way that is not geared to suiting me or my habits or my patterns, my likes and dislikes, but where I'm just following a situation. That's part of it. And in that we, we begin to encounter the traditional Buddhist uh, characteristic of existence, which is what the Buddha called non-self. We begin to bump up against self, and in the process we are already beginning to find something beyond it. 
the same in our zazen, our sitting meditation. And the same in our koan work. And koans are quite interesting because they play with this whole question of self and non-self. So they take the traditional teachings of uh, non-self, of existence being, let's call it beyond self. Uh, and they play with it and make a kind of a joke of it, really. So that typically a, a koan will will take the expected behavior of the self and present it as a, as a story. So one example is um, the, the Zen master coming to a mountain where there are two hermits and the one hermit greets the Zen master putting his fist in the air. And the Zen master says, wonderful, wonderful. And the Zen master goes to the second hermit and the hermit puts his fist up in the air and the Zen master says, this boat has no anchor. The water is too shallow. So the question that comes up, why does the Zen master approve of the one hermit's fist greeting and not the other? And immediately one's catapulted into some anxiety about right and wrong. Which one is right? How will I know which one is right? How will I know which one is wrong? How can I answer this? Or do I just say it's impossible? Do I hide from the question? Do I... What do I do? That whole sort of bundle of anxieties presents itself in that kind of situation. And if we try and answer that question uh, with the self, with all the, the tools of, of the self, um, it, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. We just get tied in knots. And it's only when we somehow are able to give up trying to find the right way to do it and we find a way of greeting us in ourselves beyond right and wrong and who's better and who's worse and approval and disapproval, all of that. Only when we find in ourselves we can, we can find the greeting. Only then does the koan uh, Come to light. <laughs> it is a bit absurd, of course. Well, not a bit. 
my wife will tell me. And, and it reminds me uh, uh, this question of practicing between self and, and not-self, as it were, or to use the Taoist uh, and early Zen vocabulary, uh, they, weren't, they didn't talk of non-self so much, they talked of a true self, original self. But as the Dharma Demolition Gang know only too well, all of those words have got to disappear uh, at some point. And if the Zen teacher doesn't demolish them for you, you have to demolish them for yourself. Okay. <laughs> so, what I'm reminded of is one of my favorite koans, which is about the Buddha's first sermon on Vulture Peak. Uh, as some of you will know, the original Indian Buddhist story of the Buddha's enlightenment is a very detailed kind of cosmic events with armies of gods and goddesses and beings and, and temptresses and people promising power and uh, money and intimacy and all sorts of things as an alternative and the Buddha keeps going and, and Mara tries to trick him and Buddha keeps going and the, and the cosmic dimensions of the story are, in, are endless there are worlds there. There are worlds full of people celebrating and weeping with joy. Uh, and the early uh, Chinese uh, Zens took that story and, and, and rewrote it. I beg your pardon, I'm telling the wrong story now. I beg your pardon, I'm telling the story of the Buddha's enlightenment. I was meant to be talking about his first sermon. That's right. The first sermon, well, similarly, the first sermon uh, was a very detailed story where the Buddha presents the Four Noble Truths in the Eightfold Path. Confusion is endless, isn't it wonderful? <laughs> Anyway, th that's the original story. In, in the Zen tradition, they rewrote it, and Buddha, this young man, came to Vulture Peak, and the crowds assembled there, and they threw flowers at his feet and waited for him to deliver his sermon. And he lifted a flower. And he put the flower down. And he left. And nobody knew what this was about. Confusion. Not only mine, them too. Endless. Except at the back was a, uh, a monk by the name of Kashyapa now known as Mahakashipa, who saw what the Buddha was doing and just 
grinned. And in a way, the whole Zen tradition is about finding Mahakashyapa's smile. How can I see the flower with such immediacy and completeness that gratitude and delight just arise spontaneously from the core of my being? And in a way, we, we, we are following Mahakashyapa's path. But there's something interesting about that story that doesn't often get talked about. That in making Mahakashyapa the hero, we already have kind of the, the, the self with all its kind of concerns has already uh, is laughing in the aisles because he knows that we're all going to want to be like the hero and we're all going to say this is right and that's wrong and he's got it and they don't have it and if I don't get it I'm going to be one of the don't have it's and I don't know if I can deal with that. So already in that story, all the sort of uh, the ingredients for the cake of self is already being stirred. And that makes it, a, a, I think, a very interesting koan. So how do we relate to that. In one sense, very directly, can we see everything that's in front of us with such completeness that we respond with gratitude and delight? There's also another aspect, and that is all the people that didn't get it, that just went, what? Or, he's an imposter, or, I want my flowers back, or whatever, I'm off home, come kids, <laughs> this is rubbish. <laughs> What about those people? Because we can all understand their response when we don't quite get what we want. And we're either envious of those who seem to have got it or just disappointed in ourselves. And so we... So we start uh, contracting and pulling away from the situation, uh, finding someone to blame. If not the teacher, then ourselves. But in a way, the real practice is how I 
am with all those people who are disappointed, with people whose life is, is sad or frustrated or angry. Mahakashyap is fine. But here are all these people of which I am clearly one and not knowing how to respond to this teaching. How do I go among people who are sad and lonely and anxious and frightened, confused? How do I make that my life? How do I make that my practice? In Mahayana Buddhism, we talk of the Bodhisattva vow. How can I look after all those who I meet? How can I make that my practice? That's where the true selflessness of this practice begins to, to shine. Because that's the practice of life beyond myself. Only when I meet people as they are in all their confusion and disappointment, Am I called beyond myself into that meeting? And if we take that story and enlarge it, we're not talking of Zen formal Zen practice, retreat practice of people who, who are familiar with this kind of reference. But we're talking with the people that are on the road with us in the morning, our colleagues that we work with, our family, uh, the traffic cop that stops us, the politician on the television, the singer on the radio, how do we how do we meet them in a way where the duality and separation between me and them uh, disappears and there's just you and me as one moment in this unfolding of life then our practice becomes real, it becomes thrilling. And every time we mess up and we forget and we get lost and confused, we start again on Vulture Peak as one of the people who 
who was lost. And that's our commitment that will begin again. Every time we find ourselves suffering from some kind of anxiety or loneliness or lostness, lack of direction, our commitment is to standing up and saying, how, how can I meet you? We say it to ourselves, how can I meet you? How can I forgive you? And we meet others in that kind of wholeness. It's, it's a beautiful prospect and koans have this kind of ability to expand and, and it's our practice, our commitment, our deepest longing to, to find that part of our life. Not because it answers the questions the self puts, but because when we step beyond that into the core of our aliveness, that sort of intensity and intimacy and unbounded affection is, is who we are. I think I've gone on long enough. I know your coffee is calling. I thank you so much for this opportunity to to remember how, how exquisite and profound this uh, practice is. <laughs>